We thank God for bringing us together once again to worship him and to honor him in the hearing of his word and to fellowship together. In 1861, my historical hero, Charles Spurgeon, at the age of 23, um, stood in the pulpit after they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And um, his first words were, paraphrasing, of course, I'm paraphrasing the words, as long as this house shall stand, and as long as it is frequented by worshippers, the subject shall always be Jesus Christ and nothing else. It is what Mark shows us as well. We have been going through this series in Mark, and today we're still in chapter 1. We are in verse 16 up until verse 20, and I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of a call to discipleship, a call to discipleship. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Mark chapter 1, we'll look at verse 16 to verse 20. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, let our focus, O Lord, be Jesus Christ and Him alone. As Paul speaks to the Corinthians, saying, I desire to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May our minds be filled with the knowledge of your dear Son. May our hearts be transformed, our lives be conformed to him. Help us, Lord, even as we consider this important subject of discipleship, that we will be disciples that are indeed shaped by you, that seek to honor you and to live by your word. In Jesus' blessed name. Amen. As I said, that we began a series in the gospel according to Mark, and the series um, is titled Seeing the Son of God. What Mark wants us to wants to tell us as he writes this um, gospel account, obviously, as we saw that and, and, and as historians also show us that Mark is writing this gospel account on the testimony of the Apostle Peter. And, and you'll notice even some of the details that it is actually details from someone who was an eyewitness. So he wants to tell us who Jesus is and show us how to respond to him. Now, if you think about it, nobody denies that Jesus was a real man who walked this earth 2,000 years ago. But not everybody believes the same thing about Jesus, is it? And not everybody responds to Jesus in the same way. But what we believe about Jesus and how we respond to him are of central importance in our lives. As we said last um, week and, and the week before, what comes into our minds when we think about Jesus is the most important thing about us. 
So what about you? Remember that question that Jesus asked the disciples? When he, he looks at them and he says, Who do you say that I am? What will you say about Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Mark's central point is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But he doesn't stop there. He spends a lot of time showing us that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and die for our sins. And that's good news for us, is it? That's a gospel. And Mark wants us to know that it's necessary for us to respond to the gospel in the right way. This morning we get the first picture of what it means to respond to Jesus. We get the first picture of what it means to turn from our old life and trust in him. This morning we come to the first calling of the disciples in Mark chapter 1 verse 16 to verse 20. Let us look at these verses I read from the ESV. Follow me as I read God's word. This is God's word. Let us hear him. Passing along the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with their hired servants and followed him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. This passage that we just read is divided into two parts. Jesus calls two sets of brothers to be his disciples. In verses 16 to 18, he calls Simon and Andrew. In verses 19 to 20, he calls James and John. And in each case, we see the same pattern. Jesus calls the brothers and the brothers respond by following him. And I think the reason these stories are so similar is because they give us a picture of how we are called to respond to Jesus. Mark wants us to look at, at, at Jesus through the eyes of the disciples here. So to divide our time this morning, I want to lump the two stories together and simply look at the call of Jesus and the response of the disciples. The call of Jesus and the response of the disciples. And as we look at the call of Jesus, we'll try to answer the question, what specifically does Jesus call disciples Two, And as we look at the response of the disciples, we'll try to answer the question, why should we respond to Jesus the way the disciples do? Let's start by looking at the call of Jesus. Jesus calls us to, to radical discipleship. But why do I say radical discipleship? I see two reasons Jesus calls uh, disciples to, 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 to radical discipleship. First, Jesus calls his disciples to surrender. As you notice, um, there are two aspects 
in this text, and I uh, uh, that, that song, I, I, I hope that you are ruminating over it, you're thinking deeply about it, even as we consider this. He calls, firstly, his disciples to surrender. He calls them to submissive surrender. We are so familiar with the passage that we can easily miss the punch, right? Jesus calls Simon and Andrew to live their livelihood as fishermen to follow him. The words translated as follow me in verse 17 literally reads something like this. Come here, get behind me. He's like a military commander telling these men to fall in line. Get behind me. When Jesus steps on the scene, he announces... The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is God's king and we shouldn't be surprised that he calls his disciples to surrender their will and submit to his will. He's in charge. He, he, he calls disciples to surrender uh, uh, control of their lives and submit to his rule. He says, come here, get behind me, follow me. This is the ultimate picture of what it means to turn from our old way of life and to trust Christ. We are called to let go of the reins and give them to Christ. As many say, we are called to let go of the wheel and tell Jesus to take the wheel. We are called to submissive surrender. Now my question is, we are singing this song, I Surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. Are you really surrendering all? Are you really surrendering all? Or are there things that you're holding back right now? You see, we treat our lives like it's a, it's a big house, Right? And in this house, there are many rooms, and we let Jesus in into this house. And, and we, we give him all the rooms except for one room. And on this room, we have a sign that has keep out. We, we don't want to surrender this one room to Jesus. We want him as Lord, but we also want our freedom. We keep the keys to ourselves. We don't want Jesus to get in into this room. What is that room in your life? What is that room? Are you really surrendering all? What is that one room in your life that you can't seem to let go of? This morning... Jesus is calling you to let go of the reins and give it to him. What areas of your life are you keeping from Jesus? Is there anything that you're not surrendering to the lordship of Jesus? Is it Jesus' call to discipleship is a call to submissive surrender to him. But it's not only that. It's also a call to costly surrender. First of all, it's a call to submissive surrender, but it's a call to costly surrender. Notice Simon and Andrew leave their nets. 
James and John leave their father. Historians comment that as Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee, they say that the, the, the Sea of Galilee was a, 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 a booming business for fishing. In, in those times, especially in the Mediterranean, Mediterranean world and the Greco-Roman world, fish and not meat was the stable meal of, of those times. And so uh, fishing in the Sea of Galilee was not only uh, um, um, supplying to local markets alone, but it was also being exported in the Mediterranean world. It was being exported in the Greco-Roman world. So you can see that it was a bustling business, right? But Jesus comes right here and he calls Simon and Andrew and they leave their nets. James and John leave their father. Brothers and sisters, that's costly. That's costly. Later in Mark, Jesus commends his disciples for, for leaving, Mark chapter 10 verse 29, house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. He commends it. In Luke, we are told, in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and verse 23, I mean, verse 26 and verse 27, listen to what Jesus says. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not hear does not bear his own cross and come after me, cannot be my disciples. That's costly surrender. That's radical discipleship. But what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean? Surely we are not called to actually hate our job and our family if we want to be disciples. That seems like a contradiction of what Jesus calls us to do in other parts of scripture, isn't it? Well, the call here to hate family and possessions is not literal, but rhetorical. Otherwise, Jesus' command to love one's neighbor as oneself makes no sense, does it? The, the call to hate here simply means to love less. Jesus wants to make an emphasis. As one commentator says, Following Jesus to be the disciple is to be the disciple's first love. The, the, the pursuit, this pursuit is to have priority over any family member and one's own life. In other words, let me say it like this. What Jesus is saying that for a disciple to say that I love Jesus. This love for Jesus, in comparison to this love for family, this love for your job, and this love for your own life, if you compare it, it will seem like you hate your job. 
It will seem like you hate your family. It will seem like you hate your life. Because your love for Jesus is ultimate and supreme. Jesus is calling us not to make him one of our priorities. He's calling us to make him the center of our lives. Everything else must take second place to follow in Jesus. Everything. When the disciples in Mark leave their job and leave their family, that doesn't mean that their job and their family are bad things. But our job and family can't take first place in our lives if we really want to follow Jesus. Jesus is calling us to put him first in everything, to make him king in everything. In other words, no room is ever to have the sign, keep out. All of them belong to Jesus. The the call to discipleship involves surrender, submissive surrender, and costly surrender. And that's radical, isn't it? It is radical. But it also involves change. It involves change. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. I'll make you become fishers of men. This is a call to change. So often we think about discipleship in merely intellectual terms. The, the, the more we know about Jesus, the mature we are, right? Well, our knowledge of Jesus is crucial. But Jesus says discipleship is about change. In fact, he promises them that if they follow him, he will change them. He will, he will make them become. Right? They will become fishers of men. I want to point out two aspects of this change that I see in these verses. First, we are called to gradual change. Right? He says you, he doesn't say you will be fishers of men. He says, I'll make you become fishers of men. In other words, what that tells us is that change doesn't come overnight. It's interesting. Jesus the king didn't come with fanfare and pomp. Right? He came and called a small group of men from the insignificant province of Galilee. He isn't leading an army and he isn't calling them to join an army. He calls them to respond to the gospel and then calls them to preach the same gospel far and wide to fish for men. You see, discipleship requires change. But it is gradual. That's encouraging truth for those of us who seem to slow to grow, right? But the point is, there must be progress. A tortoise in a race is still making progress, right? It's not about your speed, but it's about the fact that there is progress. Growth is an indication of life. If there's no growth, there's no life. 
they say that an elephant, I don't know how true this is, but I'll use it anyways as an illustration, that an elephant would come to a tree and in, in, in season, when the tree is in season, obviously, to, to, for, for bearing fruit, and will seek fruit from the tree, and when the tree does not have fruit, it will leave and come back a year later to the same tree. Apparently, elephants are known for their, for their memory. It will come back to the same tree, and if the tree still does not have fruit, at that moment, the elephant will break and kill the tree. Because the tree does not have life. As a Christian, it should not be surprising that you're growing. Growth should be expected. It should be surprising that you're not growing. Because we are wondering if the seed was really planted. If there's ever a seed in you. Second, we are called to Christ-like change. Jesus says, I will make you become fishers of men. I find this interesting because that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this story, isn't he? Jesus is fishing for these four men. He's evangelizing them. He's preaching the gospel and calling people to respond. These men are being called to do the same, to fish for men. They are being called to become like Jesus. Let me try to skip some of my notes here and say this. A disciple is a disciple maker. Jesus Christ, you'll notice here, that he calls them to to become his followers. And one of the things that will mark his followers is that they will start calling others to become followers of Jesus. Our passion, once we have found peace in Christ, our passion, once we have found true rest in him, is to call others to find the same rest. Right? Third century uh, theologian, um, St. Augustine, in his book, Confessions of Augustine, praise to God, says, we are restless until we find our rest in you. When you become a disciple, your eyes are opened to the hope that is found in Jesus. But not only that, your eyes are opened to the hopelessness that is in the world. And because of that, you cannot help but tell them about Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to simply teach a set of lessons. These guys are not a 
in a college learning about Christianity. These guys are not in a, uh, they, 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 they are in an apprenticeship with Jesus. They are following Jesus, learning how to be like him and to do what he does. Jesus, when he calls us to discipleship, it is radical. It's radical because it involves submissive and costly surrender. It's radical because it involves gradual and Christ-like change. That's the call. And don't miss the fact that this call is in the context of Jesus having preached the gospel. Right? Notice how, how Mark um, writes. It will do you well to, to read all the gospels and um, to, to see how the stories flow. There's a gap between Jesus preaching the gospel and Jesus calling the disciples. And you'll notice this gap when you read um, John, that actually Jesus had met um, you know, Peter before and Andrew. But what Mark wants us to show, he puts verse 14 and verse 15 when Jesus first comes on the scene and proclaims the gospel and he puts it next to verse 16 to verse 20 when Jesus called the disciples and this is what I want to show you here. Notice the, the connection between verses, uh, 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 verses 15 when Jesus Christ says repent and believe in the gospel. Notice that connection with what, uh, how they respond in verse 18, they left and followed. Right? Repent, left. Believe, followed. You see what Mark is trying to do here. Mark is trying to show us that there cannot be discipleship unless one has had the gospel. We shouldn't manipulate people with things that God has not called us to do in order for, to get them to be Christians. The only door to Christianity is the gospel. There's a pope a long time ago, and this is uh, people uh, like quoting this, who said, preach the gospel... Use, use words if necessary. I think, think about how ridiculous that is. Can you even say, feed the hungry? Use food if necessary? It's ridiculous, isn't it? To preach the gospel is to use words. We cannot preach the gospel with our actions as well. No one will look at your actions and think Jesus Christ died on the cross. They need to hear it. Your actions must demonstrate how that gospel transforms people. No, I'm not evangelizing. My life is evangelizing. You are not Jesus. You are not Jesus. Your life cannot evangelize. Yes, your life can be a catalyst to, to, to people wondering what happened to this man? What happened to this woman? And you start to say, as the Tswana hymn says, 
a view desire to know how I became saved. Listen as I tell you. There cannot be discipleship without the gospel. The gospel, repent and believe. Then you leave and follow. So this is the, the call of Christ. That is the first point. The disciples had to hear the gospel. And they have to be concerned with making the gospel known. Well, we've seen the call of Christ. Let's look now at the response of the disciples. It's clear enough from the passage how the disciples respond here. They follow Jesus. They surrender and commit to change. They repent and believe. They turn and trust Jesus. Remember I told you about that word that Mark uses when you read through Mark, that word immediately. Do you see it here? Jesus calls them, what does it say, verse 18, and immediately they left. Verse 20, when Jesus calls them, and immediately he called them. Mark wants to show us how urgent the mission of Jesus is. How it cannot wait until tomorrow. It's urgent. Our main question this morning is not how the disciples respond to Jesus, but why the disciples respond to Jesus the way they do. Why do they leave their nets and their father? Why do they sign up to become fishers of men? let me start by giving a possible answer that is not the reason for the disciples response to Jesus then I'll give an answer that is the reason the disciples respond the way they do first our respond to Jesus is not because we are good or great in fact we'll see throughout the rest of the gospel that these guys are often seen as hardened They are dull. And they don't always get it, do they? If Jesus were to uh, just use uh, your, your sanctified imagination with me, Jesus were to sit with the strategists of the world and tell them about his plan, that I have a plan to turn the whole world upside down. And my first thing that I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the Sea of Galilee and choose four men. And they ask him, oh, the Sea of Galilee has philosophers. No, 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 they are not philosophers. Oh, lawyers and scribes. No, 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 they are not lawyers and scribes. And, and they keep going. Are they military men? No, no, they are not military men. Then, then what are they? They are fishermen. And you see them face palming, right? Saying, this is a bad idea. How do you want to turn the world upside down and you choose uneducated men? You, you choose a fishermen. 
And we see that, right? We see how they quibble, how they fight, how they are disunited. But what do we see in Acts chapter 17? What is the complaint about the disciples? That these are the men who have turned the world upside down. Jesus chooses a people that the world will not touch with a 10-foot pole. He chooses the weak. He doesn't choose the strong. And after he chooses these people that the world looks down on, he uses them so that the glory will come to him and not to them. Do you ever feel like, I don't think Jesus will use a person like me? Or join the club? Because Jesus uses people like you. Jesus uses people like you. The people that the world think insignificant. The people that the world thinks they are in the margins. Jesus takes them, molds them. As they surrender to him, he releases them to the world. And his glory shines bright. Sometimes, the response of the disciples as we see, as we'll see even as we read through Mark, is downright sinful. So we are not surprised in Mark chapter 2 verse 17 that Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We, We don't respond to Jesus because we are good. And we don't respond to Jesus because we are great. In fact, these guys were quite ordinary and insignificant in the the eyes of the world. So if it's not because they are good and not because they are great, then why did Jesus, why did they respond to Jesus the way they did? I think the answer comes from considering who this passage is about. In the first instance, this passage in front of us is not even about the disciples. It's about Jesus. Dietrich Benhoover, a pastor in Germany during uh, World War II, who was arrested by the Nazi Germany and killed um, before the before the, the I forgot the Russians moved in says, we are not expected to contemplate the disciples, but only him who calls, and his absolute authority. So Mark here is not trying to show us how amazing the disciples are. He, he, he wants us to look to Jesus. He, he wants us to be concerned with Jesus. He, he wants us to question ourselves, why would they respond and to look to the one they responded to. The whole book of Mark is first about Jesus and about 
how we respond to Jesus. This passage is not different. It highlights, yes, the response of the disciples, but our response to Jesus is always necessary, always necessarily related to who Jesus is. Right? So why do they respond the way they do? It's because of who Jesus is. The emphasis, when you read it in the Greek, is less on the word follow and more on the word me. Follow me. The same is true for us. Our response to Jesus is because of who Jesus is. We, we see two things about Jesus in this passage that helps us understand why the disciples respond the way they do. First, Jesus takes the initiative. Right? In ancient Judaism, a disciple would seek a rabbi to follow. And it was, the way of the rab- it was up to the rabbi to accept the disciples or not. And the goal of discipleship in ancient Judaism was to master the law of Moses. But it's all different in our story, isn't it? The disciples aren't seeking a rabbi. Jesus is seeking them. He comes to Simon and Andrew, James and John, and he calls them to be his disciples. He takes the initiative. As Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 6, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And he doesn't call them to master the law of Moses here. He calls them to be mastered by him. Follow me. Come here. Get behind me. They are not being called to adhere merely to a set of instructions. They are being called to adhere to Jesus. The reason these disciples respond the way they do is because Jesus takes the initiative and calls them to follow him. And that brings us to our second reason why these disciples respond to Jesus. Jesus' calls, Jesus's call is authoritative. Jesus is the one who is calling. And the disciples respond immediately. Jesus' call is authoritative and effective. We see, we see the same thing throughout the gospel according to Mark, don't we? We see the authority of Jesus Christ, and we'll, we'll see it as we, 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 we look at um, the coming passages. Let me just give you a bit of detail. When Jesus encountered a man with an unclean spirit, he says to the unclean spirit, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit comes out of him. When Jesus says to the leper in chapter 1, verse 41 and 42, be clean, the leprosy immediately leaves him. When Jesus tells the paralytic in chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, rise, take up your bed and walk, the man rises immediately, picks up his bed and goes out before all of them. When Jesus tells the winds and the waves to be still, what happens? They listen. The authority of Jesus Christ is displayed. Jesus' call is authoritative and effective. So when Jesus called the disciples and they respond, it's not because they are good or great, it's because Jesus has authority and power. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He's worthy to be followed. We are going to, as we sing... Um, the last song, sing a song about Jesus Christ leading us. When you think about that, 
he leads me and I will follow. I want you to search your heart. Have I surrendered to Jesus? Does he lead me? Am I a sheep that hears the voice of my shepherd? Does he really lead me? Look at your life. Look at the decisions you make during the week. Look at every kind of decision you make for your family. Does Jesus lead you? Does Jesus lead you? Do you have a shepherd who is leading you? He calls his disciples here. Follow me. They leave. They follow. Have you left? Have you left that sin? Are you following Jesus? Have you left that thing that you are so tightly holding to? That thing that is an encumbrance. Sometimes good things can be encumbrances. We end up idolizing even good things. They become encumbrances to us being disciples that honor and follow Jesus. They hinder us on the way of following Jesus. This call that Jesus makes to the disciples here, I pray that you will hear it this morning in your heart. I pray that Jesus calls you if you're not following him. Because if you're not following Jesus, you're following the way to destruction. And you cannot follow two ways, can you? It's either you're following the right way or you're lost. There are no two right ways here. There's one way to follow. And that is the way of Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you speak to us clearly from your word. We pray that we will be indeed disciples that are led by you. Disciples that follow you. Lord, if there is anyone in our midst who hasn't followed you, who hasn't surrendered their lives to you, we pray that you will convict them, O oh Lord. You will call them to yourself. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.